Hello, captives and captive friends, and welcome to episode 41 of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by legacy specialists R&Q and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. We really are into the business end of the year now, and we have lots of excellent content lined up for you over the next two months. GCP Shorts on topics including captive formations, taking employee benefits to the next level, and the direct impact of COVID on captive insurance, to name just a few. And some pretty big and important names as co-hosts and captive owners will be featuring before the year is out as well. So now is an excellent time to make sure you are subscribed to our content on your podcast app of choice. Just search for Global Captive Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from and hit subscribe or follow. It is free to do so and will ensure every new episode is downloaded straight to your device. Well, our guest co-host this time is a man well-known within the Vermont captive ecosystem at least, and he is one of the key gatekeepers within the Department of Financial Regulation. I'm delighted to say joining us is Dan Peterson, Director of Captive Examinations. Dan, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much, Richard. Uh, it's great to be here, and, and, and I'm happy to share my experiences and um, what I think we can pretty much all agree is one of the sexier topics in insurance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to exactly say, ask you that question, Dan. I, I, you're, it's your job to get me and our listeners all excited about the topic of exams. So I'm looking forward to seeing how you do that. <laughs> so before we do find out a bit more about Dan and examinations, I should tell you that Karen's Captive Corner will be returning for the first time in quite a while. Karen Z is program manager for Fiat Lux Risk and Insurance Company, the captive owned by the University of California. From time to time, Karen conducts interviews for the Global Captive Podcast, and she recently interviewed Mike LaPerch, Vice President for Risk Management Services at Pride Industries. It is an extensive and in-depth interview, so we'll feature in two parts during this episode. But Dan, perhaps uh, perhaps you can start by telling us a little bit about your role at the uh, Vermont Department for Financial Regulation and your background prior to that as well. So I'm uh, I'm currently the director of captive examinations for the uh, Vermont Department. Uh, I've been in that role for about ten years now, and I've been with the department for about fourteen years. So the first few years there, uh, I was working on the traditional side, regulating traditional insurance companies. Before I moved to the state. I was actually in public accounting. I had a, about a six-year stint out there working primarily in the banking and insurance industries. And now uh, I'm overseeing a team of 22 examiners and analysts. Uh, we, we often refer to them as examalists because they do both functions. <laughs> they examine and uh, they surveillance, uh, perform surveillance over our companies. And with 600, uh, close to 600 active companies in Vermont, you can imagine we stay pretty busy. So we do uh, I would say anywhere from 100 to 125 examinations a year, and uh, you know that that takes up a good chunk of our time, uh, and and the analysis component takes up a good chunk as well, especially on the RRGs, which require a, a, a full accreditation type review uh, as being multi-state insurers. Otherwise, I get involved in licensing. I do some legislative stuff, uh, economic development, get involved in training, and uh, even touch on some of the other operational functions in the division. And I think. You know, our, our focus really is uh, trying to maintain that gold standard in Vermont. You know, we're always looking for ways to improve. We're trying to be more efficient and uh, we're trying to provide the best regulatory environment for the companies that uh, choose to domicile in Vermont. 
Yeah, when, when you go through some of those numbers, Dan, and you mentioned obviously the number of analysts or examinists uh, you, you've got in the team, it really does kind of, I think, uh, ram home the the kind of the the nature and size and the scale of the kind of Vermont captive ecosystem. It is really quite impressive. In terms of an actual captive exam then, and this is something I think you're going to teach me quite a lot in myself in this episode, Dan, because it's not, we've never really had this discussion before. We've normally just had a few beers together, I think, in, in Vermont bars <laughs> yeah. uh, when, when we do see other what what exactly is involved in a captive exam and, and what are you looking for when carrying them out and also how often do captives have to go through exams well i might add before i jump into this those are probably very good beers if we were having them in vermont, they are, I've, I've got i've got some vermont beers in my house in london at the moment as well perfect <laughs> well so exams look a lot like an independent audit they are a little less frequent um, we perform our exams every three to five years uh, whereas an audit is uh, every year. But uh, examinations generally focus a little heavier on compliance, uh, internal controls, and prospective risks. So uh, it's same, you know, similar to an audit in that we're gaining an understanding of a company, uh, we're trying to identify and assess risks, and ultimately we're designing tests uh, and testing to ensure that those risks are being mitigated. And really the ultimate goal is to ensure the solvency of the captives we regulate uh, and to ensure the protection of the various captive stakeholders. Our regulation in general is, is multi-pronged, uh, meaning that um, we start with vetting the companies at licensure, uh, our exams and analysis, business plan monitoring, uh, it's all ongoing. Uh, and we have frequent communication with our captives. Exams are all risk-focused. And what I mean by that is we focus our resources on the areas that pose the greatest risk to solvency uh, of those companies. For example, it could be liquidity or, or reserve adequacy. Prospective risk assessment has also become very important um, in ensuring the ongoing health of our companies. And uh, what I mean by prospective risks, you know, we could be looking at the impact that the economy is going to have on assets or, or how a change in law could impact a company or how a change in management could impact operations. And while we learn and understand where a company's been and um, how they performed during the examination period, identifying and assessing prospective risks allows us to understand whether or not the captive can actually get where they're trying to go. And I did mention that uh, the frequency of our examinations, you know, can be anywhere from three to five years. And that really depends on what priority rating each company is assigned. So if we have a company that we assign a higher priority rating, we're going to want to take a look at that company more often and they might end up on a three-year cycle, whereas the lower priority companies will probably get pushed off to five. And just generally speaking, about 80% of our companies are low priority we only have about three percent that are in the high range, and, and everybody else is somewhere in between. What would uh, what would make a, a captive uh, a high priority in, in that three percent? What would be the characteristics that would would mean it needs to be high? Yeah, they could they could be having problems with you know financial ratios. Their reserves could be uh, a little bit on the low side. Anything that's going to uh, impact solvency of the company, anything that could you know make us think that surplus is too low for what they're writing, uh, could put them in that bucket. And there could also be operational and control issues uh, as well as governance issues. So if we see a company's not being watched as closely as we think it should be watched, you know, it could become a, a high priority. Any internal control problems that we see, you know, during an examination could also make us a little bit nervous uh, and, and put that company on a higher priority level. 
Yeah, okay, really interesting. And, and I think this is probably relatively self-explanatory, but why are why do you see examinations and why does the department see examinations as as particularly important? Exams and analysis, uh, they're both tools that, that we have available to uh, to ensure the financial health and well-being of our regulated entities. You know, we've got a bunch of tools we can use, uh, including laws, uh, regulations, mandates, target reviews, supervision and liquidation. All the tools are, are effective, but only exams is nicknamed the white glove treatment. And uh, you probably <laughs> get a sense of how thorough it can be based on that nickname. Uh, and interestingly, some of our companies appreciate, and, and I almost said like there, but they actually really appreciate being examined because uh, they can essentially provide confirmation that the company's doing well. And those companies like to report that they're doing well. Most companies like to report they're doing well, I should say. Our process is basically circular in nature uh, with analysis leading to exams and back to analysis. Analysis focuses heavily on the numbers provided in the filings, uh, and we see them often. Uh, using a car as an analogy, uh, analysis lets you see if the car is drivable, you know, if the tires are in good shape and inflated properly, if all the lights are working, and if there's any holes in the body, uh, for example. Exams, on the other hand, focus on governance, compliance, processes, and controls, all that stuff that helps ensure uh, that the reported numbers can be relied on. So going back to the car analogy again, uh, an exam lets you see under the hood to determine if all the systems supporting whether that car is drivable are functioning properly and can be relied on. So uh, exams are really important because they give the regulator the ability to dig in and assess all those various components, to have a chance to talk to management and the board, and to really get a deeper understanding of the true potential risks to the company. You know, it's also an opportunity for us to provide some value. For example, when we offer up any best practice recommendations that we have for a company. Yeah, good. Uh, it sounds like a it sounds like a thorough process then, which is obviously uh, needed to be done. I guess it will throw up any. I presume it would throw up as red flag as well if, if there was such red flags existing. Just just lastly on this on this section, Dan, um, how has the pandemic impacted this this process of the examinations? You know, how much was it reliant on on face to face time with the captives, you know, captive manager or, or or accountants or auditors or whatever? Um, how has the how has this this situation when we're not being able to see each other face to face? impacted that process? You know, my staff has really been home-based for years. Uh, so our model had us kind of working out of the office a lot. Um, we had really gone to a model where we were visiting companies less frequently. Um, so we didn't really miss a beat with COVID. I think the biggest changes for us were no face-to-face -face time, uh, as you mentioned, and obviously no travel, which really is uh, a big impact. So we had to figure out ways to review documentation, processes, and controls remotely. We had to hold our interviews remotely and uh, interact virtually, essentially. Uh, it's different, um, but it's doable. You know, and um, I, I wonder sometimes what impact this is going to have on examinations moving forward. I mean, it's clearly less expensive uh, without the travel. So, you know, do we really need to travel as much as before? And are our processes as effective when we're doing it remotely um, as they are, you know, when we're doing it face to face? And there's one other thing, you know, the obvious uh, challenges associated with working from home that I think a lot of us have to deal with and, and my staff in particular. We've got homeschooling, which is going on. I know that it's made my hair more gray, uh, what hair is left, I guess, at this point. Um, you know, I have more time to notice the dust bunnies running up and down the hallways and obviously keeping the cookie jar far enough away so that I'm not obviously <laughs> digging into that thing nonstop during the day has been another challenge. 
yeah, no, I, I empathize with, I don't have kids, but I empathize with a lot of that. And uh, for me, it's not so much a cooking job, it's the beer fridge, which is, uh, <laughs> right. which partic- particularly those first three months of lockdown was, uh, I, I had to rein it back eventually. Um, well, we've got plenty to talk about in the second half. We're going to talk with Dan about uh, what actually happens when an exam goes badly for a captive. Uh, and we're also going to talk about this uh, sometimes ongoing debate regarding kind of states outsourcing or regulators outsourcing uh, captive exams compared to doing it in-house like for Mont do. But in the meantime, we're going to hear the first half of Karen's Captive Corner interview with Mike LaPerch. Hi, Mike. Thanks for joining me today. So I've known you for a few years now, I think, and mostly in the capacity of you being an independent board member for our captives uh, Eureka PCC and Eureka One IC. But today, I really wanted to learn a little bit more about your day job. So can you tell me a little bit about Pride Industries? Sure, Karen. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Proud to be here and uh, very happy to be part of the University of California's captive program. Well, the day job. I work for a company in Northern California called Pride Industries. We're the largest nonprofit employer of people with disabilities in the United States. And so right now we have right around 6,000 employees that work in 15 different states and the District of Columbia performing all different types of work. We have uh, very uh, low skill, different positions for people who uh, have more developmental type disabilities doing packaging or working uh, in kitting end uh, cap things that you might buy at a, uh, a big box store, for example, for the holidays when you're buying teas or coffees or gifts for people for the holidays, all the way up to uh, very sophisticated, uh, educated people who are disabled uh, doing engineering type work or uh, construction related project management type activities. That's That sounds like a, a wide variety of people that you definitely service. So I usually ask this of captive owners and it tends to be a pretty interesting story about um, why or how their captives kind of came to be. Do you mind sharing that with me? Sure, I, I started with Pride just about five and a half to six years ago now. And when I first arrived, one of the first things that my boss, uh, Tim at the time, who was the CFO said was that the insurance cost is absolutely staggering here. You need to do something about it. And so, uh, you know, being a risk management person, I came in, I looked at, you know, what kind of losses are we having? Where are they occurring? And, you know, the the classic focus, of course, is people look at uh, workers' compensation and they look at the vehicle fleet. Well, those were rather substantial with that number of vehicles on the road and those numbers of employees uh, performing services across all the different states we operated. Those were natural to look at. But I I dug a little bit deeper into where the losses were happening, and we were seeing things like uh, employment practices-related claims, particularly in California with the way the labor laws are written in California. Uh, we were seeing that our health care spend was uh, pretty substantial and increasing at double-digit rates of inflation every year. So uh, we, we looked at all of the different areas that we could grab uh, and try to wrestle control of the cost structure. And, and we started out looking at a captive as a potential solution. In fact, um, 
as I began looking at other nonprofits who had captives, I immediately found that the University of California had formed one. And so uh, I wrote to the university under the Freedom of Information Act and requested copies of the formation documents so that I had some form of a basis to begin to understand how in California could we form a captive. Many people I had spoken to said, well, you, you just can't have one in California due to the nature of the legislation there. And I was able to utilize and learn from what you'd done here and looking at what a number of the hospital groups, nonprofit hospital groups in the state had done in terms of forming captives to, to better uh, take the spend that we were having to uh, allocate and pay ourselves rather than paying uh, others for, for ensuring things that we knew were going to happen anyway. So we started out very small with our captive that we formed in Washington, D.C. Uh, Social Enterprise Assurance Company is a single parent captive for Pride. It only covers uh, within the deductible of policies that Pride already has in the commercial market. But by doing so, we were able to take for our vehicle fleet, for example, and raise our deductible to a considerably higher amount. We're at 300000 for the deductible now, and we cover all of the property damage for our fleet. On workers' compensation, we're at a million-dollar deductible. So for all intents and purposes, we're funding all of the workers' comp losses that occur nationwide. Wow. So that, that's where we started, and then we were able to add other layers into the program uh, over the corresponding years. Uh, we added a medical stop-loss program for our health plan, uh, an indemnity program, and a couple of other unique things uh, to provide collateral uh, to insurance companies that were pro providing coverage to Pride on the workers' compensation. Wow, yeah, it's, I, that's actually, you bring up some great points, um, and I have some follow-up questions for you on some of those things. You know, as a, your or as our board member for our, some of our cell captives, you always bring up some really good points about, you know, governance and establishing strong internal advocates within your organization, especially when you bring up, let's say, new lines or kind of expanding your captive. And I was wondering how you at Pride ensure internal buy-in. It remains strong for the captive. And also, is the value really understood by the wider organization? How do you continue educating folks about that? You know, with respect to the UCs, I, I think that Courtney, and, and now that you're on board, you both have done a, a tremendous job of ensuring that the key decision makers within the university system, within the office of the president, and as well as some of the, the key UC campuses are well represented on your boards. And that, you know, when, when they can sit there in a board meeting every three months and be face to face with the financial projections of, of how this uh, I'll use the term, these Dremel tools. They really are Dremel tools in our hands. How we can use them to uh, save cost and to be more efficient and effective with the resource pool that we're provided. I, I find the same thing with my organization at Pride. My boss is the one who said, you know, I said, this is, uh, this is like a Swiss army knife, Tim. We can, we can do just about anything with this tool. Uh, we can mm -hmm. provide collateral. We can utilize it to provide capital if we want to invest in some other venture for the organization's future growth. 
you know, we can uh, buy down the cost of our insurance expense. Uh, we can earn income on the capital that's sitting in there for reserves. There's a whole host of things that we can do with it. And he said, no way, Mike, this is not a Swiss Army knife. This is a Dremel tool. <laughs> so, you know, for those of you right now that are out getting ready to carve your pumpkins with your kids or grandkids, uh, I, I strongly recommend that you buy yourself one of those rather than trying to use a knife. It's just so much more effective and efficient. We, we just have found very much within pride what you found at the UC, and that is uh, getting the people who will most uh, dramatically be impacted in a positive way involved in the decision-making of the captive. So, I mean, our board members are principally members of Pride's board for our various different captives, but the, the officers are officers within Pride. So our controller, you know, our compliance director at Pride, uh, our CFO and our president are all officers of Pride Industries. And so they directly see the benefit on the bottom line of Pride's operating uh, financials uh, every month that uh, we, we post our financial results. The Global Captive Podcast is supported by RQ, the award-winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff. RQ can provide a wide range of solutions and has A-rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, novations, business transfers and acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the seller's requirement whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to RQ. No, yeah, that's great. I really like that analogy of the Dremel tools. I'm going to remember that one because, um, you know, it's a perfect segue to this next question I really had for you, too, because, you know, as we're in this hard market, this pandemic, you know, has changed the way most people are looking at insurance. And you mentioned, you know, buying down the, of insurance expense. And I, I, you know, I'm really curious how you're planning or already using your captive this year. Um, and how you look at using your captive in the future um, and what that what that looks like for Pride. Our primary captive, as I said, is um, we call it Sea Assure for short. It's Social Enterprise Assurance Company. It only writes cover for Pride Industries. So to that extent, it's very much like the UC's first captive. Um, and, and it's been tremendously successful because it's built a very solid balance sheet uh, and has been consistently profitable since we formed it in 2016. But as we're looking at the market, as you aptly point out, uh, it's, it's a challenging environment. Um, I went through all of our renewals in the summer of this year for a July 1 renewal, and we were getting quotes from from carriers that we've had long-standing relationships with that basically went something like this. Well, uh, we used to write a $20 million umbrella layer for you for, you know, X number of dollars. We're willing to write half that level for twice as much money as you paid last year. Mm -hmm. And and these folks were saying it with a smile on their face, like they were doing us some sort of a favor. They weren't doing us a favor. And obviously there was a lot of haggling that had to be done. Am I happy with the outcome? No. Uh, I think we, we paid a lot more for a lot less. 
And uh, I know that that's not something that's uncommon out there right now. Everyone's facing that. And to the extent that, uh, particularly in, in the Pacific Northwest and California, as we've seen these wildfires, property cover in the next year is going to be nearly impossible to get. In fact, I, I have an operating theory that trying to buy property coverage here is going to be much like trying to buy property coverage was in the Gulf Coast uh, back in the early 2000s after the, the hurricane season of 2003. Mm -hmm. It's just going to be dramatically hardened uh, pricing if you can even get someone to quote you. And I imagine that state governments are going to need to kick in uh, and either form a captive like Connecticut did to cover their cinder block problem mm -hmm. uh, or do something like Florida did back in the mid-2000s and, and form a, an insurance entity mm -hmm. as a backstop to the marketplace. So all that said, I mean, I, I have a lot of theories about where things are going. I think uh, other people may have slightly different uh, shades of color around that. But directionally, I think I'm pretty darn close to being correct. So as, as we look at what we're doing and how we're trying to address that, I, I can't take my captive and cover 50 million excess of 25 million on my, you know, on my excess. I, I just... I don't have the capital base to be able to cover that kind of risk. Although it's a one in a million or a one in a hundred thousand probability, I just can't with good conscience go back to my principles and say, yeah, we can cover a 20 million or a $50 million uh, tower above uh, you know, our existing lines of cover. So how do we provide you know, value? And that's what it really comes down to is if I'm going to have to pay the commercial marketplace, to cover these layers of risk that I know I can't cover with my own captive, how do I provide value in another way that can help subsidize that cost, mm -hmm. even if it's not being done directly? Mm -hmm. And so in, in the end of 2018, we formed a protected cell company in the District of Columbia that is now just getting ready to start writing a medical stop loss uh, insurance pool for mid-market employers that want to cover their medical stop loss through a captive structure. So we're working in concert with a couple of different brokers who are out marketing the product. Uh, it's a fronted product that we have uh, a Fortune 500 carrier actually as the front. And our captive, our cell captive, is going to provide a layer of reinsurance back to the, the commercial carrier. So by, by, by finding a niche in the marketplace, and being able to write outside business through another captive entity that we've formed, we're able to subsidize the increasing costs that we're seeing in our other lines of cover. So it, it doesn't have to be something that your captive provides cover for directly. It's something that if you can find a way to use that Dremel tool as a, as a means of generating revenue and profitability, then you can utilize that to offset your expenses elsewhere. That is awesome. We're truly connected because I, you literally read my mind because the next question I was going to segue into was the fact that, you know, you really do sit on our cell captive structure boards and you always have such good insight and feedback at our meetings. And I wanted to see if Pride was looking at expanding your captive into writing some more third party business kind of like you said, you know, being able to provide that value back to the organization and then back to the people. So do you plan on expanding that anytime soon, even in the coming years um, to more than just medical malpractice? Just curious. 
Yeah, well, it's medical stop loss, oh, medical, uh, stop not loss. medical malpractice. But I do think that there are other opportunities, both within Pride and then in the in the commercial marketplace itself. So, uh, you know, just to, to toot your horn here for a moment, Karen, I think that the work that you did with the cell captive structure that the UC has was right on point. I mean, you were able to take and provide uh, voluntary benefits to UC employees and dependents uh, and cover that through the cap, the cell captive structure. That's an absolute terrific example of here, here's something that is already a spend. These are dollars that are already being uh, utilized by the university or in the instance of voluntary benefits by their employees. They're purchasing these stopgap products the pet insurance, you know, the renter's insurance, they're purchasing the, the medical gap coverage if they end up in the hospital or the cancer coverage. They're buying those things anyway. So why not use your cell captive structure and go to the marketplace and say, we want you to be the front. We want you to write the paper. We want you to issue the policies. We want you to collect the premiums. We want you to do all the administration. But our captive is going to reinsure you Mm-hmm. And and if you want to do business with us, that's how it's going to work. Mm-hmm. That is fantastic because the profitability on these products is outrageous. Mm-hmm. The the first year on a program, uh, on a, a, a long-term disability program or a short-term disability program, the first year is full profit. Right. And most of it goes to the to the broker. So the fact that you all were able to squeeze that out of the equation and and bring that profitability either through reduced premiums to the employees of the UC or to lower you know costs to the university elsewhere is just a win-win. And, and those are the types of opportunities that I'll continue to look for uh, in Pride as well. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for the kind words, Mike, and thanks for um, that insight. I think. You're absolutely right with being a captive owner and with our captives being able to utilize to bring value right to our organizations. I think that's that's absolutely what we're looking to do. And it's always a pleasure chatting with you and obviously learning more about your day job. It's really nice to see how. See, I knew we had a kindred spirit going on, like we were connected in some way because it just seems like we're really in line with you know, the vision for our captives and then the fact that you bring so much and we really appreciate everything you bring to our board. Mike, I just want to put that out there. It's it's great having you on as an independent director. Um, well, and so you. hopefully, you know, we can meet at our next board meeting in person again. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd like that. Yes, very much. So right? I encourage anyone who, who is out there that has a business or, or knows or has somebody uh, that's a friend or a family member who has a disability. And uh, either as an employer, you're looking for employees, or if you're a person who has a family member or an associate with a disability, go to prideindustries.com on the commercial side or prideindustries.org on the, on the uh, help side. And uh, you know we, we are matchmakers. We don't only employ people with disabilities. We also find people who have disabilities and we place them in employment in the, in the workforce, you know, in the local uh, markets that we serve. And so, you know, there are great opportunities for people with disabilities to work today that they've never had before. Uh, 
we provide the training and the job coaching and the counseling and the and the support necessary to help people be successful. Yeah, absolutely. I checked out your website too, just to learn a little bit more before this interview. And I was surprised at how many industries you guys serve. So it's it's actually, it's pretty amazing. It's, it's so broad. So I definitely learned a lot there as well. But thank you so much, Mike, for talking to me today and joining me on Karen's Captive Corner. Yeah, it was, it was great. I, I hope I get to talk to you real soon. Karen, thanks for the invitation. Have a great day. So a really in-depth conversation with Mike LaPerch there. And thank you to Karen Z for conducting the interview. I think it is really nice to hear two captive owners in conversation. And we plan to do more of these in the future. So watch this space. Well, Dan, back to the examinations topic. And I remember uh, a few years ago, and I don't know if this is still true, but I remember when I was at Captive Review a few years ago, there was definitely an ongoing narrative around states that carry out exams in-house and those that outsource their examinations. Is that is it still common for some states to outsource this activity? And, and why do you prefer to keep it in-house in Vermont? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I would say uh, there's still a pretty good split there. Um, you know, there's several different models that captive domiciles use to regulate their entities. And, you know, each has its own strengths. A lot of it's based on what the budget has um, for each uh, individual state. Uh, some of it depends on the resources available. And some of it just depends on how much emphasis you want to put on, you know, captives. Some have their own staffs. Uh, others use contractors. Some of them uh, have their own captive division while others combine it with their traditional insurance divisions. And I mentioned earlier that our examiners and analysts are one and the same. In a lot of other states, they're separate jobs. Even further, some states will do minimal exam and surveillance work on their captives and others are very, very thorough. So in Vermont, our department has its own captive insurance division and our own exam team. You know, we perform routine financial analysis and, and risk-focused exams on all of our regulated entities, which keeps us very busy. Uh, and it allows us to gain in-depth knowledge of our companies uh, and become very efficient when shifting from analysis uh, to examinations and back. So the model uh, has worked very well for us through the years, and it's allowed us to customize our processes to focus not only on delivering efficient and effective exams, but also, as I mentioned earlier, providing some value to the captives that we regulate. The model won't work for everybody. Um, I think it, it's worked well for us because um, the resources have been there to make sure that it stays functioning the way that it's supposed to. Yeah, I remember having this conversation a few years ago with, with a few a few different regulators about how they approached their exams. It did strike me as something that I wanted to, to delve deeper into, and it, it never happened when I, when I was at Captive Review. Okay, then. So, so to finish off, Dan, um, obviously... Obviously, the the purpose of the exams and and you know the analysis of of the captives under regulation of Vermont is to ensure they're all healthy and they're all conducting business properly uh, and following the guidelines. How can a captive fail an exam though, and, and what are the consequences if and, and when they do? Yeah, good question. I guess it's not always obvious, but exams are not really evaluated on uh, pass fail basis. You know, they're really meant to be an assessment of the company's financial condition, whether they can uh, meet their obligations, and what degree of compliance they have with uh, any internal and external requirements. Uh, if a company is performing poorly, this, the exam is an opportunity for um, the exam team to determine what, if anything, they can do to help company correct its course. So the end result of an examination is ultimately going to be an exam report. And there's a lot of information about the company in the examination report, including any findings and recommendations that the exam team had. 
Uh, if those findings don't actually elevate to report level, we might also provide the company with a management letter, um, which is another way for us to kind of summarize uh, lower level findings that we've had during the uh, examination. A report with no findings or concerns is generally referred to as a clean report, and that's what most companies are trying to achieve. And uh, depending on the severity of the findings listed in that exam report, though, a company may be required to respond. They might actually have to take corrective action, uh, or they might even be subject to a regulatory plan. And in some cases, the findings are so extreme that the company uh, needs to be put in receivership or rehabilitated one way, or even liquidated, I guess, for that matter. And I guess if there's going to be a failed exam, that's probably what I'd consider to be a failed exam. I guess, uh, follow on from that, can you share any anecdotes of exams throwing up major problems that had otherwise been kept under wraps or, or were just had gone undetected previously? Yeah. So I guess we see some instances where, you know, uh, reserves are low and, and that could be management's decision or, or because um, there's issues with the data, but both of those can result and both of those have resulted in adjustments. Um, and as you can imagine, the companies with lower levels of surplus, um, you know, this, this can be quite a challenge for them. We've seen instances where things look good during analysis, but uh, during an examination year, the auditor all of a sudden has findings and, and adjustments and the company goes from looking good to bad uh, real quick. And this gives the perception sometimes that the auditor you know, has kind of dropped the ball during the other three or four years of the examination cycle. And it also makes it very challenging for us to place reliance on the work of that auditor. So we do place reliance on the work of the auditor, which is uh, an, an important component of uh, what we do during examinations. And sometimes, and although it's infrequent, you know, the, the auditor misses something and we ultimately end up picking up on it. And um, these, these can be financial items like you know, deferred taxes, for example, or, or premium deficiency reserve, but those can result in adjustments that, uh, you know, we may not have known about going into the examination. And of course, I guess the big ones really um, are fraud. And we've seen small instances of fraud that didn't really impact the financial statements that much. You know, these are the cases where it could be something picked up by management and, you know, they report to us and we go in and investigate and determine if there's any additional action needed. Generally, it's taken care of. Um, by management, but there's also the larger cases of fraud, and we've seen those as well, where we're the ones that uncover it, or, or somebody else, maybe the auditor, uncovers it, and uh, it results in you know much much larger consequences uh, to those involved. And those ones um, have even been known to sink a company. Yeah, no, of course, uh, and we, we've seen a few cases this year, not of captures in Vermont, but captures outside of Vermont, uh, actually outside the US as well, of of being involved in to some degree some level of fraud. So it's been kind of been tracking some of those recently. Just just lastly, Dan, actually, how much of an impact would kind of any kind of activity going on at parent level? raise flags for you or, or be a factor when when looking at a captive i think the, the, the good example what dave has talked about before would be the enron case uh got 20 years ago or so now mm -hmm. um and i just wonder if if, if there is uh, if, if a if a parent goes insolvent is that a cue for you guys to take a look at the captive immediately Absolutely. Yeah. If there's parent problems, in particular, if there is any kind of intercompany loans or, or any kind of balances that uh, could be impacted by uh, a parent company having financial difficulties, that's when we're really going to want to dig in. We do monitor parent companies. We keep an eye on them. We've got somebody that's uh, you know looking across all however many hundreds of parent companies that are out there and just trying to determine whether or not there's things that uh, could raise issues at the captive level. But I guess for the most part, most of our captives are pretty well 
you know, capitalize and, and operate on their own. Um, and so in a lot of these cases, even if the parent company's having issues, the captive uh, is going to still be fine. And we like that. We want to make sure that, you know, the captive is going to survive uh, even the most extreme of cases, which, you know, obviously if the parent goes away, uh, the need for the captive probably is going to go with it. Great. Well, really, really fascinating stuff, Dan. I think you did a good job in making this topic uh, as sexy as it can be, uh, <laughs> to be honest. So uh, I do appreciate you coming on. And that is uh, that's all we have time for in this episode. It's just left for me to say thank you to Mike LaPerch of Pride Industries for joining Karen's Captive Corner and to Karen herself, of course, and to Dan Peterson from the States of Vermont. Dan, thank you for coming on to the pod. Richard, thank you for having me. It's a lot of fun. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, Captives.